you, Isaac and team. Good morning, everyone. You know, I got to be honest with you this morning, not having our Chinese community with us this morning stresses me right out. Uh, boy, we miss them. We know they're having a fantastic time of ministry across the hall, and they've been going since yesterday morning at 8.30, and they'll go long into tonight, and uh, uh, so it's exciting for them. But boy, we, we miss them when they're not here. Uh, Pastor John was alluding to, just we've got so many uh, special events coming up these next few weeks with Grad Sunday next week. Uh, the first Sunday in June will be our Community Outreach Sunday and barbecue following that. And so if you are relatively new to River Cross Church and aren't really sure what our community outreach work is, you want to be here for that. It's such a spectacular Sunday. And the barbecue that we host, this big party down in uh, the Old North End, down on our Main Street site, uh, is fantastic. Uh, so you're going to want to be here. And I just was looking at the, this calendar going forward. And next weekend, and then the 4th, and then June 25th, and then whatever the first Sunday in July is. We've baptisms coming up four of the next six Sundays. And so we're just so excited at the way God is at work in people's hearts. And if you have been thinking about, bap about baptism and being baptized, uh, but want to have a conversation with somebody, please, uh, there's a tab in the seat in front of you. Just write your name, contact information, check off baptism, give it at the Welcome Center, uh, and, or give us a call at the office. We'd love to have a chat with you. And there's lots of opportunities in the weeks to come for that. So that's exciting for us. And today we begin our unseries. We've spent 31 of the last weeks going through the scriptures from the book of Genesis to Revelation. And now we have no idea what we're doing between now and the end of June. So every Sunday it's going to be something new. And uh, so today, who knows what you're in for. But uh, it's the long weekend. And I got kind of thinking of three things. There's a scripture I read this week. It's the long weekend. And um, then I read this fascinating article in the Huffington Post. So I'm going to try to smash all three of those things together. And we'll see what we come up with. I've got great memories of the long weekend in May. For me, it always meant a trip to Manitoba to our family cottage. Vitaly had Nashadoma written right on the side. And my grandmother was Ukrainian. Um, and this image of kind of the family and all members of the family kind of rolling on in for this great weekend celebration together. I remember the fridge being so full that the fridge in the garage had to be used and it would be full too. The countertops were filled with desserts that people brought and fresh baking that people brought for the weekend. Um, there'd be, my dad would be working up and down the aisles kind of figuring out where the hot spots are for fishing, where the people have been catching things. Everybody's assessing how everybody's property survived the winter. All day long, we'd hear the sound of a car pulling into the driveway, the doors opening, and lots of joy and excitement as kids spilled on out, and everybody came running into the cottage. People were outside collecting sticks because we were going to have a fire. We're going to be at the fire pit. We've got hot dogs. We've got marshmallows. And the barbecue was being warmed up, and we were going to have a feast. This was our party. We were having a, a long weekend celebration at the camp. The scriptures are filled with these kinds of events. Times of family and church family and friends getting together for these major times of celebration. In the Old Testament in particular, there was a rhythm of seven different celebrations every year. Times set apart to worship, to pray, to feast, to give thanks, to laugh, to get caught up, and to not work. Time and time again, there was this rhythm of family and friends. They were not short, they were not cheap, and they involved kind of bringing everybody together. 
This does not come naturally to me, and this is kind of per- part of my own personal struggle, is to relax a little bit more. And one of the gifts that God has given to me has been one of our Syrian families. And the Syrian family that I kind of hang out with the most, um, just, they cannot get, a, get past how busy we are. Why are you always rushing? Why do you never have time for people? Why is it always from this and then rushing to that and then just screeching in here and then burning out there and, you know, I've just got a few minutes. I can only be here for two minutes. I can only get five seconds. And just kind of, and I remember one day in his broken English, he said, Rob, why you have no time to sit and have coffee with friend? This problem. (laughs) And it's been fascinating to see my life and our North American, Western-driven culture through his eyes. And he's right. I have problem. (laughs) Scripture paints a picture of the life of faith and the people of God who had times for lavish celebrations. And yet the challenge for me as I read through Scripture and from my own experiences, I think that our vision of Jesus is typically the party pooper rather than the party planner. Jesus, and in fact, Christianity is kind of this no-nonsense, serious all the time, perpetually frustrated, disappointed, and grumpy about everybody else in the world is misbehaving and that they're all having more fun than us. Is that fair? Maybe this has been your sense of Jesus or your sense of Christian faith too. But that's not the sense we get as we read through the scriptures. I want you to turn with me this morning to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. You're using a red uh, Bible in the seat in front of you. It's on page 1648. Um, There's four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the fourth one, and um, it's written kind of thematically. We're going to just look at 11 verses from Jesus' life story in John chapter 2. This is the very first miracle that Jesus did. This is kind of his kickoff into ministry, so to speak. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I'll read it for you. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples who'd been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washings, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some of the water and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, in typical gospel style, there's so much going on here. I'm going to try to unpack for you what I think are four really, really important themes. And I think as you think about faith, or maybe you consider what is your experience of faith, 
Maybe you have never kind of experienced this kind of joy and, and kind of peace, abundance, and faith. And I want us to talk about that this morning because there's four themes. The first is this is all about joy. This festivity is all about joy. It's a wedding. Now, Jewish weddings in the ancient world were a lot different than our weddings here today. So let me just kind of give you an overview of what a traditional Jewish wedding looked like. It was a year and so in planning and preparations. First, there was the engagement, which involved the groom going to the bride-to-be dad, asking about the details of having her in marriage, the purchase price, establishing the terms of the marriage, working out all the paperwork. Okay, different world, different culture. But that was the first part, the engagement. Next, the groom would then go back to his own home for 12 months. During this time, he would build on an addition to his dad's home where he and his new bride would eventually live. Then came the element of surprise. After the groom had gotten his new house all established, attached to his dad's, he would then surprise his bride, kind of show up unannounced, surprise her, and invite her to come on back and see the new place. And some of you right now are thinking of a passage later in John's gospel where Jesus uses this same metaphor, and that's, your, that's what Jesus is talking about. Finally, the groom returns with her to the groom's father's house. They consummate the marriage, and there is a celebration which involves a wedding feast that lasts for seven days. How many of you have planned a one-day wedding? How many of you said it was so fun we would love to have added six more days to it? It was so cheap, really. We could have gone for six more days, no problem. This was the celebration in the ancient world. This is where Jesus chooses to announce or launch or kick off his ministry. Think about it. Think about a politician that launches their campaign. They do so in a choice that somehow tries to communicate what their campaign is going to be all about. Maybe they dress all casual. They've got their sleeves rolled up. They enter into the living room of a middle-class family, and they kind of announce that they're running for a certain office. It's their way of saying, this family is what I'm going to be about. Maybe they show up at some factory floor, and they get the microphone, and they stand there, and all the workers in hard hats are behind them, and they make their big announcement that this is, they're going to launch their campaign, and everybody gets a sense, okay, these are the kind of things their campaign's going to be out. Maybe they land up on shore in a sea-doo in a wetsuit and make their big announcement about their campaign. Uh, but where they launch it and how they launch it tells something about what it's like. It's no different here. Jesus chooses a wedding, a celebration of joy to announce why he has come. And he's saying the planning is over. The discussions about colors and venues and dresses, it's finished. We're now into the celebration phase of the wedding, and Jesus says, this is what it's going to be like when I come. I have come to bring people together. It's a spirit of celebration. Jesus wants the image of this joyous wedding to be the image that we think about when Christ comes to meet us. From the very beginning of Scripture, all the way back to uh, the time when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, to the times of the prophets, again and again and again, the scriptures refer to, uh, refer to God's people as the bride of Christ. Even last week when we studied the book of Revelation, I read you that passage from the very end of the Bible that said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a, as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, who is Jesus. 
So when Jesus announces the kickoff to his ministry at this wedding, what he's saying is, I am here. The wait is over, and I have come. I've not come to bring fear. I've come to bring joy to my people. He's come to bring a celebration. It's a time when we are being united with God, and it's a time of joy. The second theme is freedom. In this passage is this resonating theme of freedom. The Jewish religion had become very performance-based. If you were good, God would accept you. If you were bad, he would not. And all of this was measured around how successfully you kept not just the Ten Commandments, but the other 600 commandments that had been added to it over the years as people tried to figure out what does a good religious person look like. And what developed was this habit of living a life where you were constantly keeping score. Okay, I did one kind of like medium bad thing today, so I better do two medium good things tonight to kind of balance out the scales. And this kind of mental, spiritual mathematics kept going again and again, day after day, year after year, and it became very hard for people to know, how are the scales tipped? Are they in my favor or are they against me? Have I been good enough? Have I not been good enough? Have I performed well enough? Have I not performed well enough? And the end result of this kind of living for people was fear. For them, religion was about fear. In the wedding story, they're on about day three of the celebration and we have a problem. They've run out of wine. And I love the interchange here between Jesus and his mom. His mom kind of needles him and says, they're out of wine. And you know, Jesus is like, mom, you know, that wasn't planning. And so he does what his mom says. Now Jesus chooses these six stone jars that were used kind of for religious ceremonial cleansing to illustrate his message. In a typical Jewish home, there these jars stood at the front door. And as you came into the home, you came and you washed yourself with the water. You washed your hands, you washed your feet. You cleansed yourself before you went into the house because you did not want to come into the house not just physically filthy, dirty hands, dirty feet, but spiritually filthy. Because who knows what kind of spiritual filth you picked up as you bumped into people in the market, as you handled fruit at the stand, as you just walked through someone's property or went through your workplace, who knows what kind of spiritual contaminants you had picked up on yourself and you would never want to bring that into another good Jewish person's house. So as you entered their home, you stopped and you washed and you cleaned yourself to get the filth of the world off of you. And when Jesus uses these pots and essentially turns them into the largest wine glasses that the world had ever seen, he was sending a message. And he was saying this, the days of keeping track as to whether or not you've been good enough are finished. The days of worrying that you're going to get contaminated by living in the world are finished. Jesus is going to provide a way for you to have clarity and certainty about your relationship with him once and for all. And as he dies on the cross and is resurrected again to new life and he invites you and I to entrust ourselves to him, he gives to us, as we sang already, the gift of being called a son and a daughter of God. It was good news back then and it's good news today too because some of you are living in religious fear because you don't know if you've been good enough. And you're kind of doing the spiritual math in your brain and trying to look at your list of things you've done wrong and the things that you've done right, but did you do the right things properly? And 
Jesus said, you can be free from that once and for all. As you entrust Christ to come into your life and become the Lord and, and ruler of your life, he gives us the gift of absolute clarity and absolute certainty that we are now good enough. That God is not looking for you to perform your, your way into heaven. You will be now completely his, 100% for all time. Not partly clean, not kind of saved, not sort of accepted. When we give ourselves to Christ, he welcomes us into his family fully and completely. No more worrying and no more wondering. When Jesus uses those containers to turn the water into wine, he's making a powerful message to say, you are free from that old system. And now you can know with certainty and clarity about where you stand with your heavenly father. So, freedom. Second, or the third is abundance. Did it occur to anybody else as we read through this passage that Jesus may have gone a bit overboard in making wine here? Six jars that held 20 to 30 gallons each. So let's just use 25 to make the math easy. That's 150 gallons of wine, or for people my age and, and younger, 550 liters. Okay? That's what you call abundance. Now, time out. This, so I don't get emails. This message is not about abuse it's of alcohol. It's not about drunkenness. The point of this sermon is not Jesus wants you to go home and drink large barrels of wine. Um, in all seriousness, there have been so many lives that have been destroyed and torn apart and left to ruin because of the abuse of alcohol. And Jesus in this passage is talking about wine because it was the, the, the beverage of worship. It was used in worship. It's the symbol of abundance that God has blessed us. It was used all throughout the Old Testament, in particular in their sacrificing, in their sacrifices. One summer when I was working in Chester, Nova Scotia at the local Baptist church, um, no one would house me. So I lived at the Catholic uh, parsonage, the Glebe House. It was a big three-story house in the middle of town. Uh, the city or the town no longer had a priest, so it was empty most of the time. And they said as long as I didn't destroy it, I could have the top or the bedroom on the top floor just kind of keep it clean. So my very first day, I go to move in. I go down to the grocery store. I load up with groceries, and I go down to open up the fridge to kind of put my groceries, and there's no room because the fridge was filled with wine. And I realized I am not in Kansas any longer. But wine was the beverage of worship. Think about it for a second. If you live in an agrarian culture, wine does not come to you easily. You have to plant the seed. It has to rain enough for it to be watered. There has to be enough sunshine. You have to work to keep the bugs and the critters away. It has to bloom and grow. The grapes have to be sufficient enough. There's a process by which they are fermented and squished and bottled, and you wait. It's long. And so if you ever get to the point where you have the wine, it's a symbol of God's blessing to you, that he's been faithful to you at many steps and many stages. Wine became symbolic of God's blessing. 550 liters of wine meant God's abundant blessing. When Jesus provides this gift to the wedding, he's making a statement, life with me is abundant. When you welcome me into your life, you welcome me and the abundance that I bring. That's the third theme. Fourth is the gift of peace. 
I love the line at the very end where the disciples just kind of quietly observe all that's taking place. They're not made mention of only at the first and then at the ending. That after they had seen Jesus carry out this miracle, that they believed in him. Only Jesus could throw a party where barrels of wine are being consumed and people become Christians. <laughs> I remember speaking with a young adult one time who was trying to justify their bar-hopping lifestyle, and my response to them is, yes, that's fine, as long as as many people are becoming Christians as we're in Jesus' story here. Think about the dad for a second who's throwing this wedding, and he's run out of wine. Ancient weddings were really not much different than ours in that a wedding was a chance to showcase your family. You were making a statement about what life was like. And in this crisis was not just a logistical problem. It was a shameful, embarrassing moment. Because what essentially had happened is for whatever reason, the father was not prepared for his daughter's wedding. And you can imagine groups of people at the wedding would have come up with all kinds of reasons why that was, none of them flattering. And Christ walks in to this man's shame and into his embarrassment, and he lifts him up. Because at the end, no one really knows that Jesus has turned the water into wine, but at the, at the head table, in the midst of the conversation, everybody was now bragging about the fact that this guy went above and beyond what everybody else has done, and he saved the best till now. Jesus walks into his life, and he lifts him up. And as the disciples are watching all of this happening, they believe in Jesus, which is not to say that they kind of just kind of checked off a religious box. Something happened in the orientation of, our, of their hearts where they said, I'm no longer going to trust me and kind of my vision for how life should be. I'm going to place my trust with this guy. That there's no one better who can give leadership to every aspect of my life than this Jesus and I am now going to take my life and I'm going to put it in his hands. If this is what he does when he walks into a situation, if this is how he treats people in their moment of shame, if this is what he offers to us in the gift of grace and peace and abundance, then I'm putting my life in his hands. And when you put your life in God's hands, then you get the gift of peace because there's an assurance that comes that I don't have to be in control of everything anymore is I'm trusting him. I'm surrendering myself to him. Even though it's brutally difficult at times, I'm going to walk his way instead of my way. I hinted at the beginning that I uh, had read an article this week in the Huffington Post, and I realized it's fake news, so just humor me for a second for the point of a sermon illustration. It was entitled, 10 Things People Want in Life But Can't Get. And in the, ar in the article, the author writes, What's so intriguing to me, and this is a non-Christian kind of article, what's so intriguing to me is that it's becoming more and more obvious that the things we humans desperately long for today are not only universal and timeless, but have become more elusive and impossible to sustain. And so then they list these 10 things, and I've only listed five here, um, but they're all kind of in this same theme. Happiness which was really, as I read the, 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 the description of it, was about contentment. Money, which wasn't just about being rich, it was about stability, peace of mind that I'm going to be okay. Freedom, which is about purpose. I know why I'm here, and I just have the sense of freedom because I'm going to pursue it. 
peace. Enjoy. And as I read this article, it broke my heart. And I just thought, I wish all of these people with all of these concerns could have watched Jesus at this wedding and would have been able to have the same opportunity to say, you know what, I want to put my life in his hands. Because that's what Jesus offers to us. He offers us contentment. He offers us freedom. He offers us abundance. He offers us peace. And you know, for some of you today who would say, you know, I've been a Christian, I've been going to church, or some of you might say today, you know, I've never experienced any of those things in my life, or I've experienced one of them, but it hasn't, it hasn't been for a while. The answer is not jumping through religious hoops to discover that. The answer is just, as in this passage, opening your heart and saying, Jesus, I know that you alone can provide that for me. And I'm going to just meet with you. I'm going to pray to you. I'm just going to be in your presence and allow you to give me that gift that I cannot generate myself, but comes from your heart to mine. So today, if you would say, my faith is stale, it's old, and I'm just kind of going through the motions here, and you would love to experience contentment and peace and joy and God's abundance, then the answer is opening your heart to this Christ who comes to meet you. Let me pray. God, we thank you for this encounter, for this story. There's just, there's so much here. We just can scratch the surface this morning. But we thank you for this vision of faith that you have and you want so desperately for us, which is not a stingy faith. It's not a cheap, leftover faith. It's fresh, alive, and abundant. It gives us peace and joy and contentment. And so, Lord, today I pray for Maybe anybody who might be sitting here and says, you know, that's not been my story. But man, I would love to have some of that. That God, that you would give them the courage to start a journey of opening their heart to you and meeting you, and you will bring that to their life. God, I pray for anybody here today who's never maybe considered Christian faith because they just couldn't imagine that this would be what you would want to offer them. God, you might start them down a road where that would become true for them as well. And we pray this in your name.